Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky. Welcome to the November AJT Highlights podcast. Today, I'm as always joined by Roz Manon at University of Nebraska. And today we have another special guest, uh, fellow in the AJT Editorial Fellowship. And this is the first time we're having an international uh, attendee. His name is Ilka Helantara, and he is a transplant nephrologist at Helsinki, which he told us is the only transplant center in Finland, and he is the only transplant nephrologist there. So imagine, and I saw how many transplants you do. I imagine you have a quite a busy job being the only person there, but um, I'd like to welcome you uh, to this, and we're excited to have you here. Yes, thank you very much for the introduction. So I'm very excited to be a part of this. And, and thanks for being able to participate far away from Scandinavia to this, to this podcast. Well, fantastic. Okay, so I'm just going to go over the um, order of things. We we ordered this in a way to um, give Ilka his opportunity to go over the first two papers, which is um, the first one is entitled SARS-CoV-2 Infection and Early Mortality of Waitlisted and Solid Organ Transplant Recipients in England a national cohort study by Ravenan et al. And then the second paper that Ilka will review is entitled Organ Donation During the COVID-19 Pandemic by Ahmed et al. And then I will do a, a, a quick overview of a paper entitled There Are No Best Practices in a Pandemic, Organ Donation Within the COVID-19 Epicenter by Friedman et al. And then Roz will do two kidney transplant papers. The first one Use of tocalizumab in kidney transplant recipients with COVID-19 by Perez Saez et al. And then finish with the, a paper entitled Identifying Scenarios of Benefit or Harm from Kidney Transplantation During the COVID-19 Pandemic, a Stochastic Simulation and Machine Learning Study by Massey et al. And uh, as you can see, this is we haven't had one of these COVID-19 focused podcasts in quite some time. So I think this is just a uh, another collection of really important papers addressing the pandemic and in, in organ transplant. So why don't we kick it off, Ilka? Why don't you start off by giving us a review of Ronanen's paper? Yes, thanks. So, so the paper was entitled SARS-CoV-2 Infection and Early Mortality of Waitlisted and Solid Organ Transplant Recipients in England, a national cohort study by a group of authors from NHS Blood and Transplant. And the purpose of the paper was to describe the incidence and outcome of laboratory-confirmed SARS coronavirus infections among waitlisted patients and transplant recipients. And the data is from last spring, from February to May, from UK and specifically from England. So this study uses a registry database from the UK Transplant Registry with the purpose to identify all waitlisted patients and solid organ transplant recipients with a functioning graph. It includes, the cohort includes 5,100 waitlisted patients and more than 46,000 transplant recipients. And they did database linkage where they identified all SARS coronavirus infections from the national statutory registries. And from those patients who had a positive COVID, they recorded all deaths from the official death records. Of the transplant recipients, the majority were naturally kidney transplant recipients, as always, 70%. And also from the waitlisted patients, the majority, almost 80%, were waiting for kidney transplant. And when looking at the laboratory-confirmed infections, uh, the incidence rose steeply through March and April and plateaued in May, and it showed a very similar trend to that 
between the general population in the UK. Uh, the risk of acquiring infection was higher for waitlisted patients. Of the waitlisted patients, almost 4% tested positive, compared to 1.3% of the transplant recipients' cohort. But mortality, on the other hand, that was higher for transplant patients, 25.8% of them died due to COVID, compared to 10.2% of the positive waitlisted patients. Mm -hmm. Although the risk of infection was higher in waitlisted patients, the actual risk of dying due to COVID was similar in both transplant patients and waitlisted patients, and it ranged from zero to 0.5%, depending on the organ transplanted or the organ they were waiting for. And, and this was due to higher case mortality in the transplant cohort or the other way around, higher frequency of detecting infections in the waitlisted patient. Uh, there was an interesting subgroup in this study of 1,004 patients who received a transplant during 2020. So this year, in these newly transplanted patients, the risk of infection was a bit higher, 4.1%, but the mortality was a bit lower compared to other transplant recipients. 19.5% of the infection patients. So of the newly transplanted patients, the risk of dying due to COVID was less than 1%. So uh, I, I guess this means that the infections were detected more frequently in these newly transplanted patients because they are at close follow-up. The authors also looked into risk factors for SARS-CoV infection in multivariable models and identified some risk factors for infection, such as older age, being non-white, living in the London region or having received a transplant within the most recent year. The only independent risk factor for death was older age, which, which makes sense. So what would be the key points from this study? I think it's a very important study. It, 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 it presents a comprehensive national cohort from a large country that was actually quite severely hit by the COVID last spring. And also, I think it's very important that this study includes also waitlisted patients and not, not only transplant recipients. Uh, there are some limitations that were acknowledged by the authors. They, they only had data about the laboratory confirmed infections and mortality, but they didn't have any data on hospitalization or ICU admission or treatment or etc. By the time of when this, when this study was done, according to the authors, most of the patients who were tested were symptomatic and probably hospitalized which has to be taken into account when looking at the mortality rate compared to today, where the testing is probably much, much more frequent than by that time. To me personally, I think it was very reassuring that the mortality of the newly transplanted patients was not higher compared to the older transplant patients. And also the risk of dying due to COVID was pretty much similar between the waitlisted and transplant patients, which at least to us, in hindsight, maybe tells that it was the right decision to continue our transplant activities during the worst outbreak last spring. Uh, so I think this, this was a summary of this, this paper. I would, I would be interested to hear your comments about this. Well, I have a paper coming up that looks at, um, you know, making this decision. So again, I think when this analysis was done, many of us had gone through a programmatic shutdown and, and or we were doing you know, sort of strategizing on the wait list, like, should we take the people that are the worst off because they could develop COVID while waiting, especially on dialysis, because it's interesting to see that the mortalities here were very organ, you know, looked more organ specific. And probably because, you know, SPK and kidney require most likely required to come to a dialysis unit intestinal, I'm not sure, but 
as I'll show you in an upcoming paper that we'll discuss, there there really is a strong push to transplant these patients and and understanding the case fatality ratio for 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 COVID is, disease is hard. I mean, I think you know it's just very geographic dependent as well. So, and, and I think you know back in the day, I was reflecting on these papers today. We didn't know as much as we think we. I mean, we don't know a lot, but we know more in terms of patient management than we did. It's interesting to see their ability to see some differences in the populations. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. And I think that the theme of this, of all of these, most of these articles today is about, you know, where we were and where we've come to now, you know, and, and what a lot of these were pub, were published and accepted like right after April and May. So sort of interesting to see the data being reported and now we're into October and sort of the differences between what was going on back then and now, or, or maybe not even different, not even much differences. Things are still still challenging. Oh, great. I, I, uh, why don't we, that'll, that's a good segue into the next one. Um, the Ahmed paper, you want to discuss that? Yeah. Yes. Thanks. So the second paper I'm, I'm presenting here is, was by Ahmed et al. And, and, and this was from Washington University, St. Louis. And the title is organ donation during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so this study, they looked at organ donation practices in the U.S. during the last spring, during the, we could say, first wave of COVID. And they did this by sending a survey to 19 selected OPOs who chose to submit their data. In the survey, the questions were formulated to compare the OPO activities between March to May 2019 and compare that to a similar period, period in 2020, so a three-month period of spring this year compared to last year. <clears throat> 17 OPOs responded to the survey, and they were from Midwestern, Southern, and Western states, and from Puerto Rico, and they gathered descriptive data and analyzed descriptive data, of course, due to this kind of study setting. So during the spring of 2020, compared to spring 2019, the number of referrals received by the OPOs increased to 12%, and this was seen especially during April. Uh, during March, 49% of the potential donors were tested for COVID, whereas slowly it increased so that in May, all the potential donors were, were tested as is, the, as is the system right now. Donor family authorization decreased by 11%, and the worst decline was also seen in April, with 17% decrease compared to April 2019. Total number of organs recovered for transplantation, I guess one of the most important and interesting numbers, decreased by 17% during the whole three-month period. And again, the worst decline was seen in April 33% compared to April 2019. In line with the decrease in organ donation, the number of organs actually transplanted fell by 18% during this period, with the greatest differences seen in heart and lung transplantation, not surprisingly, uh, which decreased by 24 to 27%. And when looking specifically at different types of donors, the rate of DCD donors fell by 12%, brain dead donors by 17%, and extended criteria donors by 30%, which, which, which also makes sense. Uh, but interestingly, the organ discard rate declined by 11% this year compared to last year. They also looked at the donor causes of death. Um, I think the most important finding was that the donor death due to substance abuse increased by 35% during 2020 compared to 2019. 
The survey also included some questions about OPO policy changes. All OPOs that responded to the survey had to limit the on-site presence of staff and eight OPOs withdrew from all on-site interactions unless donor brain death was confirmed. Uh, the majority of OPOs, I think 15 of them, converted or started at least employing some virtual and telephone approaches for donor family contact and authorization, which probably is one reason of the decline in the family authorization. Uh, some OPOs also narrowed their donor criterion, such as lowered the upper age limit for DCD donors or were more restricted with marginal DBD donors. So uh, what would be the main message of this study? Um, I guess one of the most important and interesting findings is that the actual decrease in the transplant activity was only less than 20%, which I, I think can be seen as surprisingly low, as was also concluded by the accompanying editorial by Yukovalas and Lai. Another aspect worth mentioning is that uh, those regions included in the survey were not the regions that were the worst of regions during last spring, so no OPOs from the northeast or northwest were included. The editorial also pointed out that even within a specific region, the availability of staff or resources, they differ between individual centers and hospital, so, hospitals, so it may be difficult to draw any firm conclusions at least if you mirror to the current situation based on this, this finding from last spring. I think the findings in this study were actually quite logical and I, I think, and also the editorial put that really nicely, that this is a nice example showing us the complexity of the disease organ donor process and also shows us some of the challenges this whole system faced last spring and I, I, I guess continues to face all the time as the COVID situation seems to evolve throughout the world. So that, that would be a summary of this paper. Thanks. Yeah, I, w I was, um, as you were, as you were presenting this, I was, while we have the opportunity to have you on the phone, I'm just, I'm curious, um, what was going on in Finland in the same time period? And were you seeing sort of similar declines or maybe not so bad of declines that this paper reported? I'm just, it may be a long answer, but maybe if you could ju just a short overview of what happened in Finland, I think maybe the readers would be interested since you're... Yeah, you're yeah, yeah, I'll try to keep it short. Finland is, 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 is quite a strange country. It's quite isolated <laughs> also geographically. And of, of course, people travel and there is some tourism, of course, but, but we are a bit isolated. So we, we could, I think Finland shut down the whole country quite early. So, so we were not hit at all badly. And, and But we also shut down some of our transplant activities. The thoracic mm -hmm. organ transplants, they were on pause for, I think, one or two months. But that was kind of a precaution that was done before anything had happened. They, they just, we just were preparing for the worst, but actually we, we got out of this pretty light. So uh, we, are, we are still doing quite good and, and we were able to continue our activities. So I would say if we look at our numbers, we would have even less decline, maybe less than 10% decline in our transplant numbers, especially for kidney or pancreas transplant. So we are doing quite normally right now. And I think the whole year. You, you did not, there were no organ transplants done in like in April or, or very few, yeah. it was completely shut down? No, no, not actually completely. We did kidney and liver transplantations though the whole time, but the thoracic transplant activity, kid, uh, lung and heart transplantation, they, they were on course for maybe mm. two months. Yeah. But, 
but there the, the were big regional differences in Finland. So the Helsinki region was the worst hit region, and this is the only region where we do the transplant. So that's why there was some lack of ICU capacity. So, but otherwise, life was pretty normal. It would be interesting to hear about Sweden, but that could be a whole other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know from we have it's a lot of collaboration different. with the Swedish colleagues, so I I know they had to shut down more of their activities, but mm, yeah. they they continue doing transplantation time. Interesting. Well, it's interesting to see the parallels with you know the U.S., where the numbers went way down. You know, re reflecting resources and, and lack of knowledge early on, and then you know again resources again. But the deceased donor rate for kidneys, for example, is above where it was last year at this time. And actually, the slope of that accumulated number of kidney transplants will likely exceed what was a record last year. And it's interesting. Um, I think there are less discards, and I think there's less risk aversion, perhaps because of the way the metrics are sort of suspended during COVID, but the living donor volume has not recovered. I mean, it's chugging along, but it's just not where it was. And, and I think we too were derailed over time and sort of defining what we're going to do for live donation and, you know, obviously safety first. So interesting. Yeah, like, I think that was the case in the whole Scandinavia that all the programs shut down their living donor activity as a precaution, but then slowly started doing them again when they noticed mm. that there was not really anything bad going on. Wow. Okay. Well, I will thank you, Elka. Those were, that was a great review of those two papers. Um, I think it's a perfect move into the brief paper that I'll present, which actually um, kind of fills sort of a gap of what the Ahmed paper did not focus on, which was the Northeast act, specifically New York. So this was by Amy Friedman, and the group and um, that are authors who uh, work for uh, Live on New York, which is the OPO for the greater New York metropolitan area. The title is There Are No Best Practices in a Pandemic, Organ Donation Within the COVID-19 Epicenter. So th this is, I think this is really interesting because it really was the epicenter pretty much of the world during um, middle March to end of April. And um, so really what this piece, it's more of a piece, it's a brief communication, but why I think it's kind of important, I'm sure it was an editor's choice, was that it was, in, it, it's, it was the epicenter and is also put in the context of the other papers in this uh, edition that um, reported data on areas of the country or world where there, where there was less infections going on. So this was kind of the most difficult situation in New York City and how did the OPO handle it and what were what was the activity really during pretty much the month of April and basically they take you through a little bit of a um, timeline of, of what happened that on March 31st uh, Live on New York deferred the referrals of COVID-19 patients basically uh, they they basically completely deferred any cases for organ transplantation. And they began notifying all of the, there were 98 hospitals in this D DSA that were notified that the referral of positive COVID-19 cases were being deferred. And while they were trying to deal with the epidemic and essentially what occurred is that there was obviously a significant reduction in referred patients for transplant compared to the year before, because the vast majority of the patients on ventilators 
were COVID positive. So it went down to 2% compared to 11% in the same year in 2019. And the organ donor, they actually give you a table one. They go through the actual organ donors. There were only 10 of them in April compared to nearly 30 in, in March, just the month before. They were used essentially mostly in the state of New York. But then they talk about how kind of the community rallied together to with with the reduction in COVID-19. The activity really started to pick up at the, the end of April. And um, in on May 6, 2020, there was a resumption of the referral policy led to uh, about doubling the number of donors back in May. It was a really nice, uh, beautiful kind of, I think this, what really stands out in this piece, this communication is just the, the really nice figures, the color figures, where you can see a real visual of the different organs, particularly figure, uh, figure two, figure three in the paper, figure four, which kind of go, goes, it goes over uh, the activity from before and through May. And you can just see the, how the system was kind of overtaken by, by um, COVID-19 ventilated uh, related deaths and how the number of organ transplants declined and then resumed when, when that dramatically decreased with the situation improving in New York. So, you know, I think this is really kind of a, a way of saying a really more of a historical piece in my mind in a way of how this one OPO in probably arguably the worst possible place for COVID in the, in the world dealt with this and were able to rise and come out of it. So I, th I think this is a nice, a really nice addition, really kind of, I think if this is something people could look back at five years, 10 years from now and say, hey, this is what, what happened during that time period. Um, so I, I enjoyed reading it. I recall listening to a UNOS webinar, like I think at the end of March, and there was a presentation by Live On, and I want to say it was Helen Irving, but don't mark, correct me if I'm probably wrong. But I think that their information was really useful, submitting it and having it, even though it is historic. It, it really provided helpful information to recipients on the waiting list um, across the country for them to understand, you know, how does an OPO function when they can't come on site, when they can't consent a patient's family in the ICU where you did a lot of face-to-face -face consenting? And then do you even have the resources? Do you have the OR time? Do you have anesthesia? You know, do you have a surgeon that can get, you know, can, can retrieve the organs? Um, you couldn't move through the city very easily. You didn't want anybody from another hospital. So it, it really brings practical aspects. And, and though we sort of feel like, well, it's not bad because it's not on the news. I mean, I just saw very disturbing, you know, article, you know, um, local news on Utah and how Salt Lake is just overwhelmed right now. And so, you know, to our colleagues in the, in the and, and ourselves in the Midwest and the Southwest, it's really an eye opener. And you'd think we had learned from the past, but I guess we just have to yeah. march on. No, it's just the, the OPO perspective is the, of this piece, so I thought was I know, really, I know. really, really kind of interesting. You're right. And all the aspects and how, how they really couldn't do their job and kind of understandable, but, but sort of sort of sad in a way, but also kind of it leaves with 
kind of a positive note that they were able to, you know, rapidly re, re I guess, uh, revitalize everything. Right. And certainly the recovery, um, and I don't mean recovery of organs, but the recovery of these programs to get back online and, and start managing patients as quickly as possible is, is a real credit to our, to our field. All right. Well, I think you want to do the, the yeah. So, you know, I'm actually going to switch up because we're still talking about do the Massey. One. Wait, yeah, I'm going to do I'm going to do Alan Massey's paper from the Hopkins group on identifying scenarios of benefit or harm from kidney transplantation during COVID-19, a stochastic simulation and machine learning study. And to my and to his group uh, and Dory Segev, I'm really sorry, you know, to me, I'm like the worst in terms of statistics and analytical models. But um, this is a paper that shows uh, some significant sophistication. It was submitted in mid-April. It was really creating a tool to help us understand, you know, how to halt transplant programs and define the risk benefit in performing a transplant during the pandemic, a la the past papers that we've just discussed. And um, what they tried to do in this paper, and they have done, is created a calculator, an online tool to help provide clinicians potential scenarios where it would not benefit a waitlist candidate to be jumped over or not to do the transplant. Um, and so again, we were, I think, internally weighing the risks of infection and death um, on the waitlist, you know, versus getting a transplant and then getting infected. And I think that for those patients of ours that were on dialysis, you know, that continued risk of exposure because they had to go out of their home and into a unit with multiple patients. So the simulation that they created allows for patient characteristics, including their priority on the waiting list. They tried to incorporate pandemic specifics related to geography. Um, and then, you know, the acquired risks and case fatality rates, which, as you know, have changed over time. So to do this, they looked at weightless mortality from 2013 through part of 2019 using SRTR data linked to the Social Security Death Master file, which is over 300,000 patients. And we're able to look at function, you know, the functions of age, prior transplant, diabetes, time on dialysis, you know, the usual suspects, race and ethnicity in the primary payer. And then they looked at post-transplant mortality in the absence of COVID in 121,000 recipients during the same time period. And then they looked at specific epidemic, specific parameters, which are shown in table one, where they try to create values for their tool in terms of, for example, community COVID acquisition risk, high sustained versus low limited. They have specific definitions for those frequencies. And they also um, provide some other of, of parameters that they included, including how long would they wait for transplant, uh, nosocomial risk of COVID at, in transplant, because maybe you know, you're living in New York now and your community risk is quite low. Um, and then case fatality rates for COVID posts, which I think is the uh, hardest value. The logic of their model is shown in figure one, um, where they sort of give the machine, the computer, an opportunity to sort of decide, okay, are you going to get a transplant or are you going to wait so many months? And they use um, Markov modeling to create a model of decision in terms of five-year outcome uh, for these patients. And the formulas are actually included or you can go to the tool and use the tool. So you can identify life months gained 
due to transplantation, which they call the MG, ML, LMG5 variable. And then they actually um, put this into use. They use two machine learning algorithms. And um, I could go through all the specifics, but I'll probably sound pretty stupid. I want to point out a couple of results more than the methodology, which I'd invite those that are into this kind of schema to look at. Um, first and foremost, they actually provide a mortality rate in the absence of COVID on the wait list. It's eye-opening. It varied from 0.39 to 4.4% a month. And again, we always sort of think of kidney transplantation as an option, not, not true. There's a defined death rate by staying on the waiting list. And then they look at the post-transplant mortality, mortality rates after 30 days post-transplant in the absence of COVID. And those are not insubstantial, you know, especially if you're in the percent, it's 0.11 to 0.41%. And then they include the context of COVID-19. And to, to, to cut to the chase, they identified that the benefit is greater than the risk of COVID when the wait time might be more prolonged. So in those settings where you're anticipating programmatic uh, closure or lack of hospital resources or lack of a suitable donor, 70% of their scenarios really supported immediate transplant over waiting. And they have some parameters in there. I think the most benefit is when, you know, the wait list uh, case fatality rate of being lethal is a certain level. The lethality post had to be below high, um, but there's also very high and lethal in terms of COVID infection. And there's also opportunity when the risk was too high, when, when COVID was probably over-consuming or an individual on the waiting list probably was not going to get that sort of immediate benefit. So um, I think that there are some thoughts about, you know, using models to identify behavior. It's really based on the on, on accurate inputs of the data to, so that you can make accurate inferences about outcome. And you really, um, I think a couple of things that I was thinking of is, you know, a lot of it dependent on what was going on in COVID-19. And I have to say that I think the case fatality numbers were really bad in the first few months. Now that's not to say people aren't dying, but that accelerated rate seemed really out of the control and that the level of positivity versus mortality seems a bit different to me. And I know this has been speculated on in, in, in other journals about is it mutation of COVID or our acquisition of skills? So that in part is why this model may be useful that you can actually input what you think the expected risk of infection is. You know, you really have to take into account too that the model um, that there is race as a variable here and that's pointed out in the, in the Duke review, uh, the editorial by Lisa McElroy, Scott Sanoff and Brad Collins where, you know, an, an unexpected aspect of COVID has been the um, inaccessibility and higher case fatality rates in certain ethnicities in African-Americans and, and Hispanics as well. And I'm not sure that this model necessarily addresses that directly, but certainly um, I think again, is, is an important variable to not overlook, although it, it, the case fatality rates, um, their mortality rates are definitely included. But again, you know, an accurate assessment of, of case fatality rate is probably uh, quite important in order to make these decisions. I don't know of anybody actually using this tool. I think that, you know, when you're at a situation like some of the New York programs were, some of the Texas programs were, certainly Salt Lake is this week, 
where you don't have any options and you have to shut the list down, you have to shut the list down and, and, you know, only, you know, hearts, lungs, livers, if you can get those patients in because you have OR time, that's great. But I think there's a period where people just did not have ICU base, you know, didn't have that opportunity. So maybe this is more of an academic exercise in those cases. I think we've learned so much that I think our ability to accept risk of COVID post-transplant is much different than it was three or four months ago. I, I would say that for sure. Yeah, what I, what I thought was um, particularly interesting or, or useful about this paper was the ability to take a model like this and probably apply it moving forward you know, in the situations we're going to be facing moving, you know, going forward that, yeah, this was looked at in that really critical time period. But as you mentioned, there are places that, you know, surge and, and reduce and, and you can potentially use what they did here in currently or in future situations where you're having, you know, you're having to consider these critical decisions, you know. So I, th I, th I thought that it was, you, you look back on things that are, this whole, this whole issue has uh, a number of publications that were from that time, but, you know, it's all, I think, still applicable uh, moving forward in, in how they did this. And, and certainly hospital, the ability, you know, they couldn't assess hospital ability to manage patients. I mean, that's, okay, yeah, that's a flaw, that's but but you could put in your own sort of, I guess, intrinsic assessment. Um, you can estimate the mortality for these patients waiting. Sure. Um, yeah. So, and, and certainly um, inputting current knowledge of, of how COVID affects patients post. And, and, you know, we've got now a larger registries coming out of, of transplant patients post-treated, although I will next present a paper on that transition of how patients did post and, you know, <laughs> with transplants getting infected and, and the complications with that. Ilka, we didn't let you get a word in edgewise, but I don't know if you have any other comments. Yeah, or... yeah, I was, I, I, I was just about to comment about on this. So I think this was a really interesting read, but I guess it comes in the end of the day comes down to the number. What is the actual case mortality rate, and and, and the, that's what they did. They simulated the different numbers, but I think it's at, at least for me, it's good to remember that. Well, it was very difficult in March to decide what to do, whether to continue transplant activity or not. But it may be good to remember that, 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 that there's a lot of mortality on dialysis. And as you said, they have to come frequently to the institution. They have a risk of acquiring infection from the dialysis facility. So maybe it's just good to remember that there's a lot of mortality on dialysis also. So so, so it's not only about the post-transplant risk, but you should also consider the risk that is related to dialysis during these times, and, and also the immunosuppressive effect of uremia and, and, and dialysis. So that it's, I mean, it's a very difficult decision. Yeah. I mean, and I don't know if their intent was for us to use it in general, but um, I definitely think sometimes we make these kind of value judgments about should we use this donor or not, and should they wait? And, and I think having tools like this, um, I think, are helpful to sort of set a reality because it's it, the things we remember the most are the extremes, the really great outcomes and the really bad outcomes and all the other people in between that do fine, we forget about because, you know, they're, they're not part of the collective memory of the, of, 
you know, when you're trying to build your memory of medical care, you don't, you, that, that, that's just natural. And that's why we have evidence-based medicine. So that it's a great, it's a cool paper. I mean, you know, can't say more, I can't say enough about folks that can think about um, a clinical situation and create a computer model uh, to help. So I'm going to transition because we're going to be out of time soon to a treatment paper um, post-transplant. So now we are going to assume we've transplanted an individual. And this is the use of tocilizumab in kidney transplant recipients with COVID-19 by Perez Sayes and colleagues from the Spanish Society of Nephrology. Uh, this is um, a retrospective study. I didn't know this, but all kidney transplant patients in, in Spain go into this, the, this Spanish Society of Nephrology registry. And when you consider that the most number of transplants per million is done in Spain, almost 73 kidneys per million patient persons, um, it's amazing that they have this pretty robust tool. Um, their goal of this was to look at the responses using anti-IL-6 receptor therapy, tocilizumab, which is a monoclonal against that receptor. The background, again, of this is that, you know, COVID-19 infection is associated with cytokine storm in many cases. It's a pro-inflammatory innate immune activator. Um, there's some really nice reviews if you want to get into some of the nitty-gritty. One is in Nature Reviews Immunology. I'm blanking on the name, the first author, but if you Google COVID-19 immune modulation, you'll see it. And another is by Ingraham and colleagues, Lancet Respiratory Medicine 2020, really nice uh, cartoons about the cytokine storm. So in this instant, instance, um, these authors noted that there were 27,000 deaths by May 20, 26th, and they had 235,000 cases. They're probably one of the countries in Europe most struck by this disease. Um, and in their registry, retrospectively, they identified almost 500 kidney transplant patients um, in 27 centers across Spain with a median FOP about 25 days. And they were accrued to 80 in that whole cohort that received anti-L6 receptor therapy. There was no specified criteria for the use of the therapy, but just about, I think all patients had at least one criteria, whether they had significantly elevated IL-6 levels or other inflammatory markers at a certain threshold or had progressive ARDS. And they received either one 8 mg per kilo dose or a second dose in 12, in 12 hours. Interestingly, unlike some of the other studies coming out now, their mortality rate overall for patients was almost 33%. Um, they looked at the demographics of those that did, did, did not live and survive COVID, and that's in table one. Um, and you can see that the older folks that were older transplant recipients, obese, presenting with dyspnea, ARDS, and elevated D-dimer, interestingly, not elevated IL-6 levels, were more likely to be in the deceased cohort. They then show the really um, uh, sort of a summary of the overall management of these patients, both in the deceased cohort and the uh, living cohort. And of course, you know, when you think about the time that this was occurring, these patients received many things, including hydroxychloroquine, ritonavir, there's a little remdesivir and lopinavir, steroids, other antibiotics, azithromycin, IVIG, and akinra, and also immunosuppressive uh, manipulation. Uh, a third of these patients was were taken off mycophenolate, and more than half were off of all immunosuppression. They also identified that worse respiratory markers of severe ARDS were more common in those individuals that went on to die. 
So it's hard to see necessarily that there was a significant impact of treatment. Certainly one of the identifying aspects was that if your CRP level went down after the one dose, you may have had more likelihood to live, but the population is small. And so they do do a Cox multivariate analysis associated with patient death and older age, um, elevated CRP slightly, and I mean slightly because it was really borderline hazard ratio of 1.01 and it just barely missed crossing one. And uh, PAFIO2 less than 300 and obesity were associated though not significantly for the latter two for death. And again, I think it's the patient population. So again, you know, what can you glean from a non-controlled, non-randomized study? It's retrospective. You know, I think you know, at the time, it basically showed that, you know, well, you could get away with using it. It seemed to sort of make sense. But again, there was no real benefit. And their suggestion was to do a randomized controlled trial. And actually, I looked last night when we were preparing for this, that there's like 15 studies right now using either clazakizumab, which is IL-6 neutralizing, or TOSI, which is the anti-receptor in the setting of COVID-19. And those studies are ongoing. Uh, interestingly, the NIH guidelines for management of COVID, which are available on the NIH website, do not recommend anti-IL-6 therapy at all. The, the decisions are pretty much using remdesivir and dexamethasone, and no, there is no Regeneron antibody listed in their management strategy. So with that, I'm happy to take any questions you guys have. No, it always sort of makes me wonder whether the results in the general population with this drug can be applied to our transplant patients who may have different immune responses. And I know that the data in the general population with COVID have not been very positive for tocilizumab. No, but, I think, uh, yeah, I think, you know, you're right. I think, you know, again, you know, judging from what we were doing, I mean, there's theoretical sense to try to do these things. There's no doubt that I that I sort of get why we were doing that. But I also wonder, you know, there was one I, I want to remember who asked the question of whether this is worse to there was some paper I was reading this weekend. Is it worse to get rid of the virus completely and how to manage it? And are we overestimating cytokine storm as maybe being beneficial? I, I don't see how that necessarily is true. But but, I, you know, I think it's um, again was an early impact of treatment that we were promulgating because we didn't really have you know, a really good sense. And even now we don't, I mean, we're better. I mean, you know, we are more proactive about antithrombotics. We're more proactive probably in starting steroids, I think, but. Great. Well, I think we're right at the end of this. Ilka, we, any additional comments? Um, then we really appreciate your time. No, no, thanks very much. It was really a pleasure. I think it's bedtime for you and. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Wonderful. Well, um, I hope everyone enjoys this kind of COVID related focus journal and podcast, and we will pick back up in December. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.